worship and to sing with you. And just those truths that we're singing about God's glory and about the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And today we're going to be talking about that. As we look at the Old Testament, we're going to be looking forward to Jesus and looking forward to God's eternal plan. And so um, I'm excited about what we get to dive into today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, if you've been going along with us in the reading through the story plan, you, you read this this week. And so we're going to kind of dive into the depths of what is here. But before we do, I'd love to just pray uh, again. Um, and as I pray, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Not, not just to listen to me, but we are a family here. And we are the people of God. And so as I pray, I want to ask you to pray. I want to ask you to pray two things. One is to pray this, Lord, help me to see you for who you are and help me to obey whatever you call me to do this morning. Open my eyes to see you. Would you pray that for yourself? But as we pray too, would you also pray that for the person next to you or across the row from you? Uh, hopefully you know who you are. they are, maybe you don't. You can call them person A or person B or thing one or thing two or whatever, but just pray that for them too, that Lord, please help this person, help open their eyes to see you. So could we pray that together as we read God's word? Father, we come to you and we need you this morning. We recognize that there's nothing that we can do um, on our own that's pleasing in your sight apart from your grace for us in Jesus Christ. So we need you. I ask that you would speak. I ask that your word would become clear. I pray that the things that we've read, the things that we've sung, the passage that we are about to read, that you would open the eyes of our mind, of our heart, to understand it, that you would show us uh, what we need to do, show us how we need to respond. I pray that we would be obedient. I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends who are here, Lord. I pray they'd be encouraged by you this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified. Uh, I pray for those in this room who may not know you, uh, who, who may not have a relationship with you, that even today that you would open their eyes to see their need for you, that you'd rescue them this morning. I pray that you would be hope for those who are despairing today. I pray you'd be strength for those who are weak today. I pray you'd be freedom for those who are in bondage to, to sin and to pride and addiction today. So we pray that there would be nothing known in this room this morning except Jesus Christ and Him crucified put on display that we leave saying, how great is our God. We love you and we need you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, like I said, we love uh, coming out here, my wife, my family. My kids, uh, I have three, we have Jack, Evie, and Camden, and they're all four years old or younger, and so things are crazy at our house all the time. It's a lot of fun, but they love the church. Whenever we like pull up to the gray campus in the van, they always shout, it's the church, and they get so pumped to come out here, and it just blows their mind that we have two churches, okay? So when we're at the Gray Campus, they think the outpost is Dad's church, and like the main building is their church. So we're trying to work through that distinction. But then whenever we bring them here, they're like, we have two churches and like two, like peop- you know, two sets of people who are going to invest in us. So they love coming out here. It's awesome for them, and man, this is our family, so we love being here. We read earlier from Psalm 30, and Psalm 30 is actually a psalm of David before he passes away. It's of the dedication of the temple, and it's kind of the aftermath of what we're about to read this morning. And if you've read Psalm 24 this week, um, you might, or not Psalm 24, 2 Samuel 24, uh, you might have read it and just kind of scratch your head and say, like, what on earth is happening here? 
Like, it's a crazy passage. If you haven't, you're going to kind of see what's happening. It, it's, it seems out of place. It does, there's a lot of things in it don't make sense. And so there's a lot of beauty in it, and we're going to try to get there. Uh, but for us in life, as I was thinking through this text and thinking about what we're going to be getting into today, it made me think about how many things in life happen that don't seem to make sense. Can, do you feel me on that? You understand? Maybe there's things that have happened in your past. Maybe it's something random that's happened in a job or something that's happened in your family. It's like, I don't know why that happened. I don't see any purpose in it. I don't see any reasoning behind it. It just seems to be there. Uh, maybe you've gone through something in your life, something really difficult, a trial, a loss, a struggle that seems to have made no sense. Like, it just doesn't seem to fit. I don't know why God would have me go through that. I don't know why God would do this to me or do this to a family member or friend. Like, what purpose? If God is good, why would these things happen? And I've had those times. Um, and we've walked through that many times. When my wife and I were in Raleigh, uh, we were going through seminary there. We moved away from here. And it was a really special time in our lives. We were coming into the last year. And at that time, didn't have any kids and and in August of 2010, I guess, we, we got the news that we were pregnant. We were pregnant with our first child, and we were so excited. And for those of you who are parents in the room, you know that feeling of, man, life's about to change, and the joy, and you're getting pumped. And, and so it was just really special. But as we began, like, doing the doctor's appointment, stuff like that, we got six weeks in, and there was no heartbeat. Um, we got seven weeks in, and there was no heartbeat. We got eight weeks in, and there was no heartbeat. And you know, as we're talking to the doctors, the doctors saying, you know, there's a very high probability that this is going to be a miscarriage. You know, and what was a few weeks before just this time of joy and excitement and new step in our lives, now all of a sudden there's loss and there's mourning and there's struggle and there's hurt. And you're thinking in your mind, like, if, man, if God is good and we know he is and God is great and he's in control and we're his children, like, why? What is happening here? What, what's the purpose in this? Why would that happen? Some of you know what that feels like. If you've experienced loss, you've experienced heartache, and say, what is the purpose in this? What, what meaning is there in this? Why do people that don't love the Lord and who don't love their kids, and they can't and others can't, and you, you've felt that in different ways. And so this morning, we're going into a passage that's a lot like that. We read this and say, and what is happening here? How could God be at work here? Like, what, what's the meaning here? And my hope and prayer is that as we look at this text together, that, that God would begin to kind of open our eyes and unlock some things in our hearts to understand some of the whys that maybe we can't see, but why and how God works. And that even in it, see the grace and hope and redemption that for us as Jesus followers begins to give meaning in those dark spaces. So with that in mind, let's read 2 Samuel 24. We're going to read the whole chapter together. Um, and it's a narrative. And so really to understand the whole thing, we've got to read the whole thing. And so uh, jump in with me as we look at mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who is with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I might know the number of the people. So David is taking a census. So kind of crazy things are going on here. God is angry at the people of Israel. God is um, inciting David to go and number the children of Israel. We'll kind of explain what that is in a minute, but that's kind of the context. 
And also say too, if you can go back and read this later on, but First Chronicles chapter 21 is another account of this same story. And so it helps to kind of read these two passages together. Verse 3, But Joab, who is over the king's army, said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king may see it. And this is so key. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? That's a key word. If you underline or circle, you want to circle the word delight. Why do you delight in this? Why is your joy in doing this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and all the commanders of David's army saying, don't do this. Don't do this. You don't need to do this. Trouble is going to happen. Don't do this. But David ignores their advice. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and from Aror, which is the city, in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jezir. And I'll skip down to verse 9. They finish it up. And Joab came and gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. He was convicted. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I've done very, very foolishly. David realizes his sin. He realizes his pride. He realizes what's happening. He asks God to forgive him. But with all sin, there are consequences. There are ramifications for the things that we do. And so in verse 11, it says, When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. David's seer, which means he was one of the prophets that would speak on behalf of David to God, God to David and the people. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall three years of famine come on to your land? Or will you flee three months from your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Can you imagine getting that I'm going to give you three choices. Three years of famine on you and the people. Three months of your enemies defeating you and the people. Or three days of plague on your people. Could you imagine the weight of that? The decision that David has to make now? Keep going. 14. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. And that's one of the key lines here. You circle and underline. But let me not fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So in three days, 70,000 people are killed because of this plague. This is a big deal. Moms, dads, children, grandparents dying because of this sin, because of this plague. Verse 16, When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. 
Now, uh, then David spoke and said to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David's standing on behalf of the people saying, No, Lord, punish me. Don't punish them any longer. Verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. In Chronicles 21, it says Ornan. It's the same guy, just a different name, different way to say his name. Verse 19, So David went up at Gad's word that the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and servants coming toward him. And he went out and paid homage to the king, face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer what seems good. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges, sledges sorry, and the yoke of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, the Lord your God accepts you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord God that cost me nothing. Again, very key statement here. David is not going to give a sacrifice that doesn't cost him anything because it's not a sacrifice unless he has to lay that down. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver and built there on the altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings, peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. What is going on here, right? So see, like you read this passage, like, what in the world is happening? We've got God inciting David, and we've got, you know, David sinning and doing a census, and we've got, you know, plagues, and we've got people dying, and we've got threshing floors, and we've got angels with swords in their hands. Like, what in the world is happening in this passage? And the first time I read it, that's why I'm asking, it's like, what is going on here? Like, why is this here? Like, why is this happening? And if you've kind of read through the story, you read... Uh, Chapter 23, 23 is a nice ending to the book. Like, it just seems to make sense, seems like it should be over, and it just feels like, man, 24 is just tacked on. Like, why is this here? And not only why is it here, but why is God doing these things? What's happening? And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to answer the question, what is happening here? And then what is God doing here? And what does that teach us as God's people about when it comes to things we don't understand? situations that we don't seem to make sense like how do we respond to God in those things so there's two sections here in this passage that we're going to look at and try to explain our time together the first one is this we see the reality and depth of sin specifically in the passage we see the sin of the nation the sin of David but in it we see our own sin and, you know, we'll just say from the very beginning, I think we all understand this, that everyone in this room, like, we are sinners. That's a part of who we are. So we see the reality and the depth of our sin. And the first thing we see is that sin is a rejection of God. In verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Israel, the people of God, they had rejected God. We don't get all the backstory. We don't know what's happening. But it says, again, and if you've been walking with us through the story of the last several months, then you know that again and again and again and again, God's people 
stop worshiping God, start worshiping idols, turn away from God. You know, God has to step in and intervene on their behalf. The people repent and they go back. Well, apparently that's what's happening again. A few chapters earlier, there was a famine on the land, and we find out it was because the people hadn't obeyed. Sin uh, had come back into the camp, and so they had to deal with the sin so that famine would go away. And so sin ultimately is a rejection of God, and we see that in this passage. So what is happening here? So we get to verse 2, and it says, or verse 1, it says that God incited David against the people. So what is happening here? We know from James chapter 1 that it says that God does not cause evil, that God does not commit evil, that God does not cause people to sin. So what is happening in this passage? What is God doing here? Well, First Chronicles chapter 21 is really helpful because if you go over that passage, you can look at it later. It says that Satan stood against David and incited him to sin. So Second Samuel 24, God incited David to sin. 1 Chronicles 21, Satan incited David against the people. So who's doing this, Satan or God? And the answer is yes, right? That we understand that God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. He's working for the good of his people. And he's in control of all things, including our enemy. And so this seems to be a Job-like moment. You know, we know in the New Testament that Jesus comes to Peter and says, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And we read in Job that Satan comes to God and he asks for Job. Let me destroy his family. Let me send these things on him. He will curse you to his face. So there's something like that happening here with David. That Satan is going after David and God is allowing Satan to go after David. But unlike Job, David is giving in to the temptation. He's giving in to the sin and he's choosing not to trust the Lord so we see that the people have sinned and we don't know all of what that is but we know that they've rejected God but also we see that that David has sinned he's he's not trusting who God is the king as we know in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is supposed to be the one who leads the people to follow God who leads the people to love his law but David isn't doing that And so as we read this passage, one of the things that was really hard for me is like, what's the big deal about this census? Like, why is this such a bad thing? Why is it wrong for David to number the people? And this is why, you know, going through the story is so helpful because censuses are actually something that God talks about in Exodus chapter uh, 30. So we'll put this on the screen, Exodus 30, 11 through 16. And look at what God tells the people about a census. This is what he says. The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, listen to this, that there be no plague among them, When you number them. So God's saying, you can do a census, but if you don't do it my way, a plague will come upon the people. David's the king. Deuteronomy 17 says the king is supposed to copy the law and know the law. So David knows the law, but he's ignoring what God had told him and told the people would happen if they did a census unlawfully. Each one who's numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old upward shall give the Lord an offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the surface of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance for the Lord, so as to make atonement for their lives. So what's happening here? God has told the people, it's okay to have a census, but you have to do it this way. The census is supposed to be a memorial. It's supposed to remind the people of God's faithfulness toward them. And so they're supposed to give a certain allotment of money so that a plague would not come. So that's what's happening here. When Joab goes to David and says, don't do this, don't do this, Joab and the commanders, they know God's law. They know it's going to happen. If David does not do this the right way, there will be a punishment come on the people because David will be breaking God's law. But David, instead of remembering God's word, chooses to reject God. And that's what sin is ultimately for us. It's rejection of who God is. But sin is not just a rejection of who God is. Sin is choosing to find our hope or identity in something other than God. So what's kind of the root of what's happening here? Well, it's pride. In verse 3 it says, Joab says, but why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Here's what's happening. David is choosing to place his hope in his army. Why does he want to number the people? Not to worship God on behalf of the people. The reason he wants to number the people is because he wants to know how many soldiers he has. How big an army he has. He wants to have confidence in the might of his kingdom and in his own power. Instead of trusting the Lord, instead of resting in God, he is trying to find his own rest and hope in his armies and in his people. And so sin, ultimately, it's choosing to find our hope and our identity in something other than God. And this is where we all are, right? Every single day, we're tempted to place our hope, our trust, our weight. We want the thing that defines us. It could be your job. It could be authority. It could be power. It could be possessions. It could be the approval of a person. But we are all looking to something to find our hope in, to find our worth in, find our value in. So David, he takes his eyes off of God and he puts his eyes on his possessions, on his kingdom. And instead of following God's law to bring God glory, he uses the people for his own gain. It's sin. And the same root of that sin is the same root of sin that's inside our hearts and our minds. And the other thing that we see about sin from this passage is that sin is deceptive and it's destructive. We saw this last week when we talked about David and Bathsheba, but sin, it's deceptive. In David's mind, this looks like a good thing. This looks like a good idea. And sin, it lies to us. It lies to you. It lies to me. It says, if you do this, there will be joy. If you do this, there will be confidence. If you do this, there will be hope. If you rest in this thing, it'll provide what your soul longs for so desperately. But sin lies to us. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Literally, it means incurably sick. It cannot be cured on its own. Who can understand it? The depths of who we are has been tainted by sin, and we run to those things instead of running to God. And, and David, he knew God's law. He had the truth of life, but he chose to ignore it. 
he had godly counsel in his life. He had Joab who, if you know anything about Joab, he wasn't the most upright man, right? He's like killing people right and left and stabbing people in the back, literally. You know, and he's the one, the voice of reason saying, hey, David, don't do this. You know, if that guy is telling you not to do it, then you know that there's a problem, right? But he was so blinded by his sin, he couldn't see it. And the same thing, brothers and sisters, for you and me, we can be blinded by our own sin. That's why we need community. That's why we have life groups. That's why we gather together, because we need people in our lives to say, hey, watch out. There's danger in that. Yeah, that's a good thing, but you're going after it for the wrong reasons. And it can be your undoing. It's going to destroy you. You need people in your life. I need people in my life who can speak the truth and say, watch out, stay away. But David, he didn't listen to that advice. And we see that sin is not just deceptive, but it's destructive. You see what happens. 70,000 people die in three days. Sin has consequences. I've heard it said before that sin is personal, but it's never private. The things that we do ripple into the lives of other people. Our choices, our decision to not follow God, it hurts the people around us, and you know that. You know the people that you've hurt. You know the things you've said that have wounded. You know the decisions that you've made that have had effects on other people. You know the brokenness that sin brings, not just to our lives, but to the lives around us. And that's what's happening in this passage. That the sin of a man is spreading now to the people. Not only do we see these truths about sin, the last truth that we see here about sin is that sin is not just something we do, but ultimately it's a part of who we are. Sin is not just an action. Sin is not just a choice, but it's deep within us. When it says in this passage, why do you delight in such a thing? Why do you delight in this? Why do you want this? Because our desires are bent towards sin. There's a deep brokenness within us. And we see that within David. Even though he's the man after God's own heart, he's leaning into things that don't bring God glory. I saw this in my own family this past week. I told you I have three kids, and the oldest is four years old, Jack. And so one night, Katie was gone, and I was watching the kids. So it's like, Daddy night, so everybody can run around, do whatever they want kind of thing. So I step into one room while all three are in the other. And I just told them not to, like, throw anything. We have a, a split for your house, and so sometimes they like to throw things off the banister down to the next level. You know, chaos. They get it from their father, not their mother. And so I've told them not to do that. So I walk into the other room, and I hear this bang, you know, fall down, like roll down the stairs. So I know somebody's just chucked something over. So I walk in, look at Jack, say, Jack, did you throw something over the banister? He's like, no, Evie did it. And... You know, I know Evie's like standing like 15 feet away and, you know, there's no way she could if she wanted to. It's like, Jack, did, did Evie actually do that or did you do it? He's like, I, I did it. You know, so are you, did you lie to me? Yes, lie to me. He's four years old. And so, you know, what do I do? I throw him over the banister. This is what happens. <laughs> what you get? No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that, I promise. I'm a family pastor. I wouldn't do that. I have to keep, keep my job. No, why would he do that? Because sin is a part of who he is. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand all the Bible. He doesn't get it, but it's just ingrained in who we are. And I want you to hear this, friends. We cannot get rid of our sin on our own. You cannot be good enough. 
You cannot obey enough. You cannot follow God's law enough. You cannot do enough to overcome your sin. You need help. You need a rescue. You need someone who can step in your place. And I need that because it's deep within us. We need to be delivered from that. We cannot fix that problem. And so we get into this passage and we see the depth of our sin in this. We see our need for a rescuer. The people need a rescuer. And we see death as a result of these decisions. We know that ultimately sin doesn't just lead to physical death. It leads to spiritual death. But we also, and this is the second thing that we see, the second section within this passage, we see the mercy and grace of God on display. So David sins. He confesses his sin. There's consequences. Those consequences are plague is going to come on the people. 70,000 people die in three days. And there's this angel with a big sword, and he's about to come wipe out Jerusalem. And God says, stop, stop. And again, David, he says, I'm going to throw myself on God because he's wise, he's merciful. I'm going to trust that his mercy will overcome in this situation. So God, he stops This angel from destroying the city. And then David, he sees what's going on. Somehow he sees this angel. God allows him to see what's happening with the sword in his hand. He's about to destroy Jerusalem. And God puts it in David's heart. If you're going to save the people, you're going to have to sacrifice to me. So David goes to this place, this Aruna's threshing floor, which is a place where they would beat out wheat and grain. And he goes there and he offers the buy the place and there he lays a sacrifice to the Lord and the plague stops. It's averted. The people are saved. So what's happening here? Several things and we'll be finished. First thing we see from this passage is this, that God uh, loves his people too much to leave us in our sin. We saw this last week with David and Bathsheba. God loves his people too much to leave us in our sin. From the very first verse, God is active in David's life. Why? The people have sinned against God. God could lead them in their sin, but what does he do? He comes to them. He leans in. Uh, Ultimately, God disciplines his children. And discipline is a good thing. Discipline is a means to bring us back to him. Discipline is a pursuit word. That God doesn't leave his children in their sin. If you are a child of God this morning and you are in sin or you are running after things that you know bring no glory to God and they bring destruction, God will not leave you there. He will not allow you to stay there. He will correct you. He will come into your life. Why? Because he loves you. Just like for my kids, when Jack threw that over the thing, I didn't just let him go. Why? Because I want to help him learn. I love him. I want him to grow. I want him to obey because I want to protect him. I want good things for his future. If Jack decides to run out in the middle of the road or throws his ball out there and I see him go out there, I'm going to correct him. Why? Because I'm a mean dad? Because I don't want him to have to play in the road? No, because I love him. In my love for him, I want to see him safe and secure. So I'm going to intercede. And so, friends, God loves us too much to let us go in our sin. He intercedes on our behalf. The second thing we see in his mercy and grace is that God does not treat our sins as we deserve. God does not treat our sins as we deserve. We see in this passage that in God's mercy, he stops the destroyer from destroying Jerusalem. 
this death angel. It reminds us of Exodus, when the death angel goes through Egypt, killing all the firstborn, that God stops the angel from doing that. Psalm 103.10 says this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What does that mean? Does that mean that God ignores our sin? No, He doesn't. If God is just, He must be just. He must punish injustice. But He does not treat our sins according to what they deserve. Instead, He puts that punishment on His Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. And that's the beauty of what we've sung about. It's the beauty of what we're talking about this morning. So we see that God loves his people too much to leave us in our sin. That God does not treat our sin as we deserve. The people deserve to be consumed. We have to remember that. These 70,000 people, they were in sin. David was in sin. They didn't deserve God's mercy, but God chooses to show them mercy. Third, we see that God provides a means of atonement. And this is why this passage is here. This is why 2 Samuel 24 exists. And this weird named guy, Aruna, why it's so important. Because David goes out, he buys this land. What, what's the big deal in all this? Well, the spot that he purchases becomes the site of the temple. And the temple for the next thousand years will become the place of sacrifice for the people. So here's, here's the big deal. Here's why this passage is important. Here's what we need to understand. So lean in in this moment, okay? Listen, listen to the importance and significance of this. When David builds an altar, what God is saying is that in order for sin to be dealt with, there must be sacrifice. There must be a sacrifice. There must, in order to deal with sin, there must be a sin bearer. Someone must come and take that on themselves, that for the people to be saved, a sacrifice would have to be given. And it's pointing to one day when an ultimate sacrifice will be given. When the Son of God will become a man, he'll lay down his life and become the sacrifice for the people. And so here we see that the temple will be built on this piece of land. We're guilty of our sin. We need someone to come rescue us. And so this becomes the site of worship for the children of Israel. It becomes the place of sacrifice for them. But it's also significant because of the location. And again, first reading, first glance, we're not going to pick up on all this. But as you read the story, you begin to see how the pieces fit together. This place, this threshing floor, this mount where the threshing floor is sitting, we've seen it before. We saw it back. In Genesis chapter 22. You might write in your Bibles your notes. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. When you read 2 Chronicles chapter 3. It talks about the temple being dedicated. And Solomon makes this important statement. This is what he says. The site of the temple is Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? It's come up before. In Genesis chapter 22. God tells Abraham to take Isaac. And go to Mount Moriah. For a sacrifice. Remember the story? So Abraham takes his son. He puts wood on his son's back. The son carries the wood up his back to the top of the mountain. Abraham lays Isaac on the sacrifice. The father is going to sacrifice the son on behalf of the people. And an angel comes and stops 
Abraham with the knife in his hand from slaying the people. Now we're here in Jerusalem. There's an angel with a sword in his hand who's about to destroy the people. God says there must be a sacrifice. Go to Mount Moriah, picturing back of what Abraham has done with Isaac and picturing forward to one day when another son will go outside of Jerusalem to another hill and will lay down his life as a sacrifice for the people. So here we see the mercy and grace of God on beautiful display. And for us, brothers and sisters, that we need a sin bearer. We need to sacrifice someone who will lay down his life for us. And so we see that God provides a means of atonement, a means for paying your sin debt and my sin debt. And that's why this passage exists. It's why it's here, because it's pointing to David and the children of Israel and to us looking back that we need a Savior to come and rescue us. We need a perfect, spotless sacrifice. Spurgeon says this, talking about this passage, the Son of God must go to Calvary. You nails, you must pierce him. Wood, you must uplift him. Soldiers, you must bruise him. Death, it's necessary that you should kill him. There, sinner, there. There is that which can make the angel sheath his sword. In Gethsemane, on Calvary, rest your eyes. There God is teaching you, look, he must punish sin. How dreadfully he punishes it in Christ. Listen to the groans that come from his heart. Hear his death shriek and his awful cry, Lama Sabachthani. God is just, for he is punishing Jesus for you and for me. Believe in Christ, trust him, then you shall know that he was punished to Savior instead of you. By his chastisement, you and I are made free. He cannot punish two for one offense. He will not first smite you surely, and then smite you. Rejoice in this. If Jesus died for you, he released you from condemnation, and he secured for you eternal redemption. Christ has paid the whole penalty. Mark it, beloved. As soon as the bull smoked in the fire, the angel puts his sword away. The plague was stopped. Not one more in Jerusalem would die. No, not one. And for all who place their faith in Jesus, there is no more death. Rest in the Savior. And lastly, we see that God's chosen king is a picture of the coming Savior king. 1 Chronicles 21.16 says this, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave the commandment to number the people? Is it not I who have sinned and done this great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord God, be against me and against my father's house but do not let this plague be on your people. In David, we see God's chosen king, who is David, as a picture of the coming Savior King. How? David offers himself as a substitute for the people. David stands before God and says, let your wrath come on me so that they might be saved. One day, another son of David will stand before God and say, let your wrath, let your punishment fall upon me so that your people might go free and be saved. David is interceding on behalf of the people. He's praying to God on behalf of the people. Jesus intercedes on behalf of us, God's people, standing in our gap, standing in our place. 
David offers sacrificial worship to God. He's the one who brings the offering to God. Jesus becomes the offering for us to God. And we see that David averts the plague. David rescues the people. If David does not offer this sacrifice, with no sacrifice, there's no payment for sin. The people cannot be saved. And Jesus rescues his people. Jesus saves. He rescues. He redeems. If you're in Christ and you're a Jesus follower here this morning, you have been saved. The ransom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. If you're, not here, if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and you don't have a relationship with him, you can be saved. Place your faith in him. Trust in the Savior King. So David points us to see him. So why is 2 Samuel here? Why is this story here? What, what's happening? This passage is sitting here to teach us several things. One is that, and here's kind of our response to this. One is that we can trust God. You can trust Him. Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Maybe you're here this morning and there's some things that are happening in your life that don't make sense. They don't add up. doesn't seem to match God's character. It doesn't seem to see any hope in this or any reasoning behind it. We can trust Him. We can trust Him knowing that if you are in Christ, God is working for your good. He's working for His glory. I love 1 Timothy 1, and Paul's talking about how Jesus saved him and rescued him. and He goes on to say, God did this in me. Why? For your sake. This is a truth that we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that some of the things that happen in our lives aren't for us. They're for other people. Sometimes the things that God brings us through, it's to shape and grow our character. There's no waste in that. But sometimes the things that happen to us are not as much for us as they are for others. So that one day, you'll be able to speak into someone's life. One day, God will be able to use that. You know, the rest of the story I was telling you from the beginning is that in God's grace and mercy, that our son wasn't a miscarriage. That, that God brought Jack in this world and, and we went from mourning to rejoicing and, and I don't know that God won't take a child away from us at some point but I th- now get to sit in conversations with people who are walking through loss and walking through difficulty and I, ha- I have an understanding a little bit of the pain and the hurt and some of the things that come in that That's, it's not wasted, nothing is wasted so we can trust God this morning We can repent. That's another one for us this morning. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe as you're reading through this passage, there's some pride in your own heart. For me, this has been the thing that's been like beating on me this week. There's so much pride within me. And so quickly I run to things like David looking to his army to provide for his needs. I run to things to fulfill the needs inside my heart instead of resting in God. Maybe there's some pride. Maybe there's some sin. Maybe there's something in your life that your response this morning is to be like David and say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And just like David says his heart struck him, maybe you're sitting there and there's something striking your heart saying, I I know that this is not right. I know that I'm 
resting in my job, in my kids, in my spouse, in my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my degree. I'm chasing these things, provide this need in my heart instead of resting in God. So maybe your response this morning is to be like David and repent of that. Maybe your response is to worship. And one of the things that we see in this passage is that worship comes with sacrifice. It comes with cost. David says uh, that I will not give a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Jesus said, for whoever would lose his life, would try to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We have the opportunity to lay our lives down so that people can see Jesus. Lastly, and for all of us this morning, we have the opportunity to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I love Romans 5, 20, when it says, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Think about that. There's massive sin in this passage. Massive sin. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in James 1 it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is our cry if you're in Christ this morning. Mercy is triumph over judgment. That The God of mercy overcomes our sin, overcomes our shame for those who place their faith in Christ Jesus so we can lean in. Because ultimately, the temple is not about a place, it's not about a building, it's about a person. In 2 Samuel 7, God gives David this promise. David wants to build the temple, and God says, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house through a son. Well, the temple is going to be built, but God's telling David something important. He's saying, your hope is not going to be found in a place, your hope is found in a person. You fast forward hundreds of years, Jesus, John 2, he walks into the temple and he says, this house, this temple, will be destroyed in three days. But then I will raise it up again. So Jesus walks in knowing that he is the sacrifice, he is the priest, he is the king, and that he has come to save his people from their sin. Mercy triumphs over judgment you bow your heads and close your eyes and the band can come to lead us wherever you are wherever you come this morning this passage is a difficult passage it's a hard passage there are a lot of questions that aren't answered and that's the way our lives are a lot of times that there's questions aren't answered but there are some questions that are answered and one of those questions is that god is working for the good of his people he's pursuing his people nothing is wasted and it's all about drawing people to himself So how do you need to respond this morning? Maybe it's to trust.